God, help us to be humble as we come before your word. Help us, uh, Father, to listen uh, with a desire to change, to meet you, and to be transformed by you. Uh, help me to preach clearly and, uh, and faithfully, and help us all to, uh, to be more satisfied in you and to know you better and to, to give you praise at the end of the night. We love you and praise you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. How's it going? Good. All right. Um, well, thanks for joining us. Uh, how many of you are here for the first time? Is anyone a first-timer at Deacon? Give it up. Sweet. So thank you guys uh, for, for joining. Uh, if you're still on the fences, or if you're still on the fence about joining Deacon, or if you're still church hopping, uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, we're going to try to feed you poke enough that you, um, that you are convinced to stay. Uh, no, that was a couple weeks ago. I don't think we're going to do it again for a while. Um, especially because the, the person whose parents uh, were responsible for the poke has now left for Santa Barbara. Um, so thank, thank, yeah, say thanks to Sammy. We miss her, or at least her parents. Uh, <clears throat> I want to start tonight uh, with a question. Okay, we're going to start tonight with a question. Um, and the question is, when's the last time you felt really guilty about something? It's the last time you felt really guilty about something. As I was thinking about how to open the sermon, um, I was thinking about the fact that there are probably some first-time visitors, right? I was like, man, we should show them that, like, you know, we're fun, and we're, like, lighthearted, and you'll have a great time here, and we're great people to be around. And this is the best I could come up with, <laughs> is the question, when's the last time you felt really guilty about something? But seriously, I want you to think about that question for a moment. Uh, think about what you did. Um, how did you feel? And then, most importantly, I'd be curious to know, how did you handle the guilt? How did you handle the guilt? So maybe what you're thinking about is something small, recent, even from this week. Maybe you, like, sip, skipped class, right? Or you know you should be doing homework right now. You haven't touched your books all week. Uh, maybe you're supposed to be texting and calling your parents, and you haven't talked to them uh, in a while. Uh, maybe you took, like, three servings of poke a couple weeks ago, and you still feel, feel, feel guilty about that. Um, or maybe it's something bigger. Uh, maybe you cheated or lied uh, or got carried away at a party. Maybe you recently said something really hurtful to someone you care about. Uh, maybe there's a particular sin that you've been struggling with. Maybe it's been for a long time, and you, you can't seem to give it up and keep giving in. Or maybe it's something from a long, long time ago, like years ago, and it's never really gone away. Right? Uh, maybe it's a, a sexual encounter that you had. Maybe you hurt someone really, really badly. Thanks, Leighton. Uh, maybe there's something about you in the dark that you've never told anybody, never told a, a single person because of how dirty and ashamed and unworthy it makes you feel. Well, tonight we're going to talk about that guilt. Tonight I invite you to bring that guilt because tonight God speaks to that guilt. And I can think of no better place where he speaks to that guilt than in tonight's passage, Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And the title of tonight's passage, as you can see from the handouts that Leighton uh, just passed out, is From Guilt to Good. From Guilt to Good. And that's the path that Psalm 51 is going to take us on. It's going to take us from guilt to good. So if you look down at, at the handouts that you just got, you're going to see that we're going to have a lot to cover okay, uh, on this journey from guilt to good. So if you don't usually take notes, um, can I just recommend something? Take notes tonight. If you're one of those people, I don't know if you're one of these people, but uh, if you're one of those people who goes to lecture and like, basically your notes are a word-for-word -word transcript of what the professor has said, you know, uh, which probably isn't the best way to take notes in general, by the way, but definitely don't do that tonight. This is not the sermon to do that. I, I, I'd hope that your notes are just a way for you to follow along and write down a few things, just a few things uh, that really stand out to you that really stand out to you on this journey that we're going to take from guilt to good. So take out your phones or take out your pens, whatever you're going to use to take notes, and let's go on this journey. Leading us on tonight's journey is this guy that you may have heard of. His name is King David. King David's the most iconic, famous ruler in Israel's history, right? Kind of like uh, when you think of Rome and Julius Caesar, or you think of Greece, Alexander the Great, 
right? Think of Asgard, Thor, right? <laughs> yeah, some of you are like, Caesar who? Alexander who? Oh, Thor. <laughs> Got it. Big king. Got it. So David's described in the Bible as this man who's after God's own heart, right? Uh, and as you might know, uh, centuries later, one of his descendants turns out to be this guy named Jesus, uh, who turns out to also be pretty important. So for a lot of reasons, David is this one guy you think about when you imagine a faithful follower of God, maybe the first person you think about. So it actually might be a little surprising that our, our guide on today's journey from guilt to good is going to be King David. But one of the things that we're going to learn to admire about David is not that he was perfect. I hope we're going to learn to admire how he dealt with his lack of perfection and to learn to follow in his footsteps. So before you get to Psalm 51, sorry if you've already turned there, I'm going to make you turn again because our journey actually starts in the book of 2 Samuel. Now this is a story you might have heard before. We're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And David starts us on our journey. Our journey that starts, or that begins on an afternoon in the springtime at the king's palace. The king's palace. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Late one afternoon, when David, our king, arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So David, he sees this woman, he asks around about her. Right? And we read on, we find out that her name is Bathsheba. We find out that she's got a husband. She's married to this guy named Uriah. And in verse 4, if you look at verse 4 with me, you learn that David takes this woman, Bathsheba, by force and sleeps with her. It turns out he actually gets her pregnant. But then he's got to deal with her husband, right? Uriah's still around. And Uriah, this is a guy who, who happens to be one of David's best soldiers, Okay, so David summons this soldier, Uriah, and encourages him to go home to his wife, which is actually pretty smart, right? Because he knows it'll look kind of suspicious if this woman gets pregnant while her husband is away and hasn't been home. So David's trying to cover things up. See that? Um, and maybe you can relate to him here, right? That sin that you were thinking about, that guilt that you were thinking about, covering it up. But actually, as we read on, we find out that Uriah is such a good guy that it says in verse 11... If you look at verse 11, he says, basically, as long as there's a war going on, I don't want to go home. I want to be with, uh, with my country, with my king. So I'm not going to go home to my wife, Bathsheba, until we see this thing through. All right, so that's Uriah. That's the kind of guy he is. So David's like, what do I do? He tries to get the guy drunk, okay? Still doesn't work. Uriah's not going anywhere. So David starts getting desperate. And then we get to verse 14. Look at verse 14. David writes this memo to the commanding officer. commanding officer's name is Joab. And in verse 15, look at what the memo says. Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. So that's the message that he sends. Okay. So David, he's on his last resort. And you know what? His plan works. We find out that Uriah's killed in battle. The plan goes exactly uh, as it was supposed to. And in verse 27, after Uriah's dead, we learn that David makes Bathsheba his wife, and about nine months later, she has a baby boy. And that gets us to chapter 12. So look, look at what happens in chapter 12 in verse 1. God sends this prophet, Nathan, who happens to be one of David's trusted advisors, to confront the king. Now keep in mind, right, if you've taken a health or bio class, you know that the baby has to be cooking for nine months, right? So you know that uh, David has been going for at least nine months without being confronted about this sin. Now think about that. Nine months of adultery, even rape, this murder, this big cover-up, this big conspiracy on David's mind. No one knows about it. Can you imagine what that's like? For nine months, the, the weight that he was carrying around, the nagging voice at the back of his head. Maybe you can relate to that too. Okay, so back to our story. The prophet, Nathan, confronts the king, and I want you to look at how David responds in verse 13. So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Look at what David said to Nathan. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is an incredible moment. See, there are a hundred ways that David could have responded, right? He was the king, and back then, 
This was like normal behavior for kings. Take the woman they want, kill whoever gets in their way. You have that kind of power, right? But David's response is, I have sinned against the Lord. And it's that response and the song that David subsequently writes about this whole experience, which is Psalm 51. It's those things that make him the best guide that I can think of for tonight's journey. Tonight's journey from guilt to good. So let's go to Psalm 51. And that was just the intro, right? So I'm really trying to sell you, if you're on the fence about coming to Beacon, I'm really trying to sell you on on coming to this church. Uh, We're going to read Psalm 51 together. I really like what Francis did a couple weeks ago where we had you guys kind of interact with it a little bit. So I'd like you guys, if you have your Bible in front of you, to take a verse at a time, okay? Um, So why don't we start up here and kind of snake around. I'm going to start with the introduction at the top of Psalm 51, and each of you will read a verse because it's a kind of long psalm so we can all follow along together, all right? Ready? So the first one. Okay, so the introduction is, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, so if you're looking at your outline, uh, you'll see that we're going to break this conversation down, this conversation that David has with God, into three parts. Okay? And the, and the way I've titled each part, it's supposed to be a prayer because that's, that's what this is. It's talking to God, and hopefully it's a prayer that we can adopt. So we're going to start with part one, which is in your notes, and it's God, I've sinned. God, I've sinned. I want you to look again at the words that David uses, right? Look back at verse 1. Blot out my, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin, transgressions, iniquity, sin. Okay, so I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to look at these words, right? And this is what I did when I first looked at them and be like, okay, I get it. David wants forgiveness for his sin, for like doing bad stuff. Um, and it takes a moment to register that he's using different words for a reason, right? Like, it's easy to think, oh, he just went to, like, thesaurus.com and then, like, plugged in a bunch of words. Uh, not that any of you guys have ever done that on your essays. But, but I want to slow down because this is actually important, the, the three different words that he uses, because in the Hebrew, they all describe slightly different things. If you guys know, I, I don't speak Hebrew. This is just stuff I look up uh, online. Uh, but, but these words are, are, are important. Transgressions iniquities, and sin. Um, Just some definitions. Transgression refers to the crossing of a boundary, entering an area that you're not supposed to be in. Okay, That's what transgression is. Iniquity, on the other hand, is more about character. It refers to the twistedness and the perversion of a person's character. Sin is defined as missing the mark. You might have heard that before. Falling short of a standard. Imagine shooting at a target, being way off. Okay? So crossing a boundary, twistedness and perversion, 
missing the mark. Uh, let, me try, let me try to illustrate uh, these, the, these three concepts. Growing up, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I had a strict sweets quota as a kid. Okay, so I grew up in one of those like, really Asian families where like, it's not too sweet is like the best kind of dessert, you know? Um, and, uh, and so it was really rare to have anything that was like, better than like crispy cake, right? Um, but every so often, we'd get ice cream, and there'd be this like, tub of ice cream in the freezer. And that was like a gold mine, just waiting for me in the kitchen. Um, and sometimes, um, my mom was really busy, right? She would run errands, a lot of kids in the house. So sometimes she would have to leave the house to, to pick somebody up or, or go uh, grocery shopping. And I'd be home alone for like 30 whole minutes. Uh, you can do a lot in 30 minutes. And you can probably guess what I was thinking about for all 30 of those minutes. Like as soon as I heard that door close, I'd run straight for the freezer and open it up and like stare at this tub of ice cream, you know? And there would be this like maybe minute or two where I'm like, I shouldn't, I should control myself, I might get caught, but then I'd grab a bowl and dig in. Um, and the whole time I'd be like really paranoid. It's a really weird experience, like, oh, this is so good, I'm so scared, this is so good, I'm so scared. Because I'm thinking like, what if my mom does this like comparison, this before and after, like, oh, it's this level, and then I notice, what's up with that? Like, two inches of ice cream's gone, why is that? Right, so I don't know about, I don't know if you can relate to this, I would like take the ice cream and like rearrange it, I would kind of like scoop it and like fluff it up so it looked like there was more in the container. Um, hopefully she wouldn't notice. And then I'd be done with my ice cream, I'd run back to my room, and I'd sit there and I'd feel like really satisfied but really sick at the same time, and, and just sit there being nervous for like the next 25 minutes. Um, okay, so eating the ice cream, I think is a, is a good analogy here, because there, there, there are the, these three concepts. First, the, the transgression, right? Ice cream's off limits. I cross into off limits territory. Uh, my character, it says something about my character, my greed and gluttony, there's iniquity there. Uh, falling short of this standard where I'm supposed to be this obedient and self-controlled son and aware of the danger of diabetes, right? Uh, and I fall short of that, that's the sin. So there's this transgression, there's this iniquity and this sin. And David uses all three of these different terms to describe what he did. He uses all three of the terms to describe what he did. So take a moment. Remember that sin, that, that guilt that I asked you to think about earlier? Take a moment and think about where you've seen transgression and iniquity and sin. How would God describe what you did in those terms? How would God describe what you did in those terms? And it's important to start there because we got to understand that David knew this feeling of guilt really well. Right? Look at verse 3. If you're following along the handout, this is subpoint B, okay? Look at verse 3, which says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Remember, at least nine months has gone by, right? Between what David did and this psalm that he's writing when Nathan confronted him. And here he's saying in verse 3, I know what I did. And it's not just that he's like objectively recognizing his wrongdoing, like, yeah, I fess up. It's like, no, 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 the, the feeling of guilt hasn't left me for a second. Like every day for the past maybe upwards of a year, there's been this nagging voice Right, this sick feeling in my stomach, this lump in my throat, there's been this cloud over my head for months. So Beacon, I'd be curious, have you felt that before? And maybe, maybe it didn't last for nine plus months. Maybe it was just hours or days. Or, or maybe it, it has lasted longer than that. It's, it's lasted years and years. I'd want to know, have you felt that feeling of guilt before? in the aftermath of sin. Well, you're not alone. You're not alone. David, this famous, iconic, legendary king of Israel, man after God's own heart, he felt it. Like, he really felt it. He felt it, I've felt it, and in many more ways than with stolen ice cream. Every Christian ever has felt that guilt. You're not alone. 
So David, our guide on this journey, he continues. Look at verse 5. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, right here, David's not referring to, like, his mom burying him out of wedlock or anything like that. He's talking about something else. He's talking about a biblical truth that theologians have referred to as original sin. Original sin, so that's also in your notes. See, the Bible teaches us that we're all born with a sinful nature. Now, keep your finger on Psalm 51. We're going to do a little flipping, okay? Turn with me to to Romans 5 for just a moment. Romans 5. We're looking at Romans 5, verse 12. And the Apostle Paul is writing to uh, the Romans. And, And look at what he writes in verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's, that's Adam, okay, in Genesis, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. All right, we could spend a lot of time here. I think there's a lot of, of theological depth here, but, but the main takeaway from you, for, for you, is, is basically this. Ever since Adam, we've all had a sinful nature from birth. We're born with a sinful nature that leads to death. So, so uh, speaking of death, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, just a, a couple books further. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, the Apostle Paul, again, is going to explain this concept of, of death by sin a bit further. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Now, verses 1 through 3 describe all of humanity from birth, okay? All of humanity, you and me, everybody from birth. And here's what Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So, what's Paul saying? All of us, from birth, were spiritually dead, we're spiritually dead. We, we're unresponsive to God's call, right? Just like a, a, a dead body, a corpse on the ground, it doesn't respond to anything, right? You can yell at it all you want, it doesn't move. And, and we're in the same condition spiritually, in that condition that we, we, we follow the world, we follow the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. We live in the passions of our flesh. We're born with a sinful nature. So if you go back to Psalm 51 and look at verse 5, That's exactly what David's talking about. When he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, he's saying, it's not just that I sinned, right? He's not just thinking Bathsheba, Uriah. As bad as those were, he's saying that the problem's even bigger. It's not just that I sin, it's that I'm a sinner. It's not just that I sin, it's that I'm a sinner. So take a step back, right? What have we seen so far? David's coming before God, and he's saying, God, I've messed up. I see my transgression. It's ever before me, right? My transgression, my iniquity, my sin, what I did with Bathsheba, Uriah, it's been haunting me. But it gets even worse. I look at my whole life, and I see sin in all of it. As the theologian Charles Spurgeon once said, or or said about this passage, it is as if David said, Not only have I sinned this once, but I am in very nature a sinner. So Beacon, let me talk to you for for, for just a moment about how this hits home. Some of you have felt a lot of guilt about one particular thing, right? This one thing that you did, or this one thing that you keep doing, maybe. Uh, And and, um, some of you, on the other hand, you don't feel a lot of guilt, Right? You don't feel particularly like a sinner because you don't have that big one thing that you've done or that one thing that uh, seems really bad. Right? I, uh, for me, I, I think it's the same. I, I, I find it really easy to measure by myself by how I'm doing in one particular area. You know what I mean? Like measure my spiritual health by how I'm doing in this one battle with this one particular sin. So if I'm doing well, then I feel good. If I'm not, then I don't feel good. But, but sin isn't like a cut or a bruise on one part of your body, where if you bandage it, then, then you're okay. 
Sin is more like an autoimmune disease, right? Or this systemic illness throughout your body. It's not just in one spot, it's everywhere. And and so it might look different or, or show up in different places at different times, but it's always there. It's part of our nature. So, so if I were to ask you, what do you confess about? Would you say that you find yourself often confessing about only one particular thing over and over and over? It's always the same thing. Or would you say you, you've, you've felt desperate and prayed only when you've dealt with one particular sin? When you read the Bible, listen to sermons, do you, do you find yourself focusing on how it applies to this one issue in your life over and over and over? Then, then we all need to recognize our struggle isn't with one particular sin. Name it, lust, porn, laziness, gossip, hating this one person who you don't like, whatever it is. Our, our war is with an entire nature, an entire nature. So, so we can't measure ourselves by how we're doing with this one particular thing. We must submit to the reality that we are all sinful, that even as Christians, sinfulness is always with us. And the the doctrine of original sin, I think, is really important because if we live any other way, we're only going to be on our knees before God sometimes. We're only going to be on our knees before God when we we feel like we need to be. And we're only going to feel like we need to be when this one thing isn't going well. Right? But Beacon, the Bible calls us to live on our knees begging God for mercy every day because our whole bodies are sick and without the doctor's help for our entire lives, we're not well. And look back at our passage. We're in verse four now. We're in verse four. And David writes, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now listen to, the, listen to that again. Against who has he sinned? Against you, right? Against God and, and God only. Do you see that? Against you, you only have I sinned. Isn't that a little weird to you? Right, think about what David did. What did he do? He, he wronged Bathsheba for sure, right? Killed her husband. In fact, he killed a lot of guys, right, because he left the whole company to die. Let down the entire country. This is the king, right? So how does a guy like that then turn around and say, against you, you only have I sinned? The truth that we learn here is that sin is sin because it's against God. Sin is sin because it's against God. What makes transgression bad is that God says, here's the boundary, don't cross, and then we defy him. What makes iniquity bad? It's that God says, you be holy as I am holy, and our character's corrupt. What makes sin bad is that God says, here's how you should live, and we fall short. It's God's boundary. It's his commandment. It's his standard. So if you look at the rest of verse 4, it's even clearer, right? Keep reading with me in verse 4. David says, So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, God, if you say that I'm a sinner, you're right. If you judge me as a sinner, you're right. Because ultimately, it's your judgment that matters. Now, I think a lot of you, if you've been to church for, for any amount of time, you'd probably agree with that, right? Yeah, our sin is against God. That makes sense. Um. But I think if we're honest, a lot of times in the aftermath of sin, we're not just thinking about God. In fact, we're thinking a lot about ourselves, aren't we? How we've messed up, how icky we feel, how heavy this burden of guilt feels on us, how we need to shape up and we need to improve and we need to stop this or that. How, how someone might find us out, right? We're thinking a lot about ourselves and, and not often enough about what God is thinking, what he feels, how he's displeased, how he's hurt, how he's sad, and how he wants to forgive and how he wants to help you. We're so caught up 
with ourselves. So can I encourage you guys, Beacon, can I encourage you guys to do something? Uh, the next time you confess in the aftermath of your sin, instead of dwelling on yourself and, and getting trapped in that sort of inward-looking, even self-pitying downward spiral, focus, just for a moment at least, on what God is thinking about your sin. Not just what you're thinking or how you're feeling about your sin, but what is God thinking and how is God feeling about my sin? So, David has brought his guilt before God, right? Um, And that brings us to the next part of our journey. The next part of our journey, part two of this conversation, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. Go back to verse 1. We're going to revisit verse 1. Look at what, what David says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So what is he doing? He's asking for mercy. He's asking for God to blot out his transgressions. All right? And this illustrates an important truth about how we get to mercy. Okay, this is the first sub-point. How do we get to mercy? And a truth that we need to recognize here is that God's forgiveness is conditional. God's forgiveness is conditional. Getting his mercy requires confession. To get his mercy, you have to ask for it. Let's, let's look at that in, in, a, in another passage, in 1 John chapter, tw- chapter 1. So if you keep a finger in Psalm 51, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 1 John. Okay? And we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He's with me? And here's what John says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see that? This is a conditional statement, right? It's an if-then statement, right? If we, what, in verse 9? If we confess, right, if we confess our sins, then he, what, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? If we confess, then he forgives. Forgiveness is conditional. You have to ask for it. And, and so uh, let, let me just take a moment to, to talk to anyone here who's, who's not a Christian or is unsure about Christianity, we got to be clear on something. The Bible is clear on something. Everyone's a sinner. And everyone is invited to receive forgiveness through Christ by faith. But God doesn't forgive everyone. He forgives only those who accept that invitation. So tonight, if, if that's who you are, thank you for being here. And, and I would beg you to think about this invitation that's in front of you. To consider the invitation that's in front of you. But it's also applicable to Christians, right? If you know you're a Christian, it also applies to you. In fact, 1 John wrote the letter to Christians, right? Because he's telling Christians too, if we confess, he forgives. And that's because for Christians, confession still needs to be a constant pattern of our lives. We still need constant forgiveness and mercy throughout our lives. So the question I would ask you is, how's your confession? How's your confession? When's the last time you confessed? What was it for? Is turning away from your sin before God a pattern of your life? Because that is how we get to mercy. That's how we get to mercy. Let me try to illustrate this. Um, think about the last time you were really thirsty. Right? Maybe it was a hot day or you were like working out, playing ball. Uh, you, maybe you just forgot to drink water for like a day. Now imagine you're really thirsty, you come across this cooler, and the cooler's got a lot of ice water, it's full to the brim of ice water. You see it, but that doesn't do anything for you, right? You can't just see it and know it's there. You have to drink from it, right? You have to drink from it. You have to go there. Uh, If you don't feel thirsty, okay, then you don't go and you don't get the water. So mercy's the water, confession's going there. Mercy's the water, confession's going there. But here's the thing, once you decide to go to the cooler, 
It doesn't matter how thirsty you are or how long you've been thirsty. Once you drink, your thirst is quenched. And that's the second subpoint about receiving mercy. Go, to, go, to, go back to Psalm 51. David says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. Listen, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So what is David appealing to? What does he depend on? Right? Have mercy on me according to what? I heard it. According to your steadfast love, right? According to what blot out my transgressions? According to your abundant mercy, okay? So, so he doesn't say, have mercy and blot out my transgressions because I made up for my sin or I'm doing all these other things for you or, or I've gone clean, I've gone sober for like X amount of time, right? Or, or I, I took a shower and it doesn't feel as bad anymore, or because I'm so broken and I'm like sobbing over my sin, so I feel bad enough, please forgive me. He doesn't say any of that. He says, do it, show me mercy, blot out my transgressions. Why? Because of who you are. Because of who you, God, are. And guys, this is, this is crucial because I think if we're being honest, that's a lot of times not how we come before God, Right? I don't know about you, but for me, we, we do feel like we have to make up for it. We, we do feel like we have to do enough good things for God to say, okay, you can come back to me. Right? Have to, we, we have to have a, like a, a streak of X many days without doing this thing before we're right with him again. We feel like we have to get to a certain level of feeling bad. Right? Our confession's not good enough. It's not genuine enough unless like, I feel a certain amount of pain over my sin. But but we don't come before God on the basis of ourselves. It's not on the basis of if we've made up for it or, or enough time going by or how bad and broken we feel because there's never enough good that we can do to make up for it. There's never enough time that can go by. You can't feel bad enough, and that's a good thing because God doesn't forgive you on the basis of what you've done. He forgives on the basis of his own love and his own mercy. Right, going back to the water cooler analogy. Once you start drinking the water, then the water does the work, right? Like the water makes you not feel thirsty anymore. It doesn't matter how long you've been thirsty, how long you waited to get to the water cooler, right? It doesn't matter like how thirsty you are. It, as long as you drink you're good. Your, your thirst is fully quenched. So what does that mean for you? It, it means that for all of the sin in your life, there's no better time to bring it before God than right now and right here. And when, not if, but when you sin again, there will be no better time to bring it before God than at that moment. There's no better time to bring your sin before God than tonight, right here and right now. And that'll be the case for the rest of our lives. For the rest of our lives. Now here's the crazy thing, okay? Um, so far, right, the way that we've kind of set this up, it seems like it's like a I meet God halfway thing, right? Like I bring confession, God brings the rest, right? And that's true, Right, in the sense that it's an if-then kind of thing. But look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. David writes, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, what does David mean? God, you broke my bones. What does that mean? Like God like cracked his tibia? It's obvious that, that it's not literal. So, so what is David talking about? What this shows is that David recognizes that the heavy weight of guilt that he feels, God had something to do with that. God had something to do with that. Right, that little voice in the back of his head, the lump in his throat, the sick feeling in his stomach, those are from God. They're gifts from God. His conscience, right, the, the prompting, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, those are from God. 
In other words, the guilt that he feels is a gift from his God. How is it a gift? How is it a gift? Any of you ever watched Lion King? Lion King? Well, actually, raise your hands if you've seen The Lion King. Okay, all right. Because um, there are going to be spoilers. But the movie's also been out for like longer than you've been alive, so it's fine. Okay. So when I was growing up, The Lion King was my favorite movie, right? Um, I had this little TV in my room, and it had a VCR. Does anyone know what a VCR is? Okay. Um, if you don't, it just plays movies, all right? Uh, and I, I, I owned one tape, and one tape only, and it was Lion King. And I'd do the whole thing where I like rewind, like you stick it into a thing, and then it rewinds it, and then you, and you play it again. Okay. So every day, this is like elementary school, right? Like first grade, I'd come home after school, put on my Simba pattern PJs that were like super faded, and I'd watch this movie beginning to end. Because you didn't have homework, right? First grade. And I'd cry every single time at the same spot. You know, you know what spot I'm talking about, right? Where Simba finds his dad, Mufasa, right? And, and his dad's dead. I know that's a spoiler, but dude, yeah, 1994, that's when it came out. Okay, so... So you know that part, right, where he's like, Dad, Dad, get up, we gotta go home, we gotta go home, right? And then he's like running around like, somebody help me, anybody, All right? Okay, I can't go too long with this because we're gonna get messed up. All right, so, so in that movie, right, um, at the beginning, before all this like really sad stuff happens, it's really happy, Mufasa, the king of the Pride Lands, uh, he's with his son, Simba, and there's one scene where he's showing him the kingdom, the Pride Lands, okay? Because um, Simba's next in line. And then Simba asks this interesting question, and he, and he points to, pause to, whatever, this, this part of, the, of the, um, the land where there's no sunlight, okay? There's no sunlight. It's like all dark. And he goes, uh, Dad, what about that part? You guys remember this part, right? And, and what does his dad say? What does Mufasa say? He says, those are the shadow lands, okay? Those are outside of our borders. You must never go there. Only what the light touches, that's us. Everything else, don't go there. So if you know Simba, right, he's like me with the ice cream in the freezer. So he, decide, he wants to go to the Shadowlands, okay? Um, and the moment he's there, you like totally know he's screwed, right? Like the animated lighting, it all disappears. Uh, the scenery gets all scary. Um, the soundtrack turns really spooky. Um, as he gets closer and closer to the Shadowlands, to, to danger, the warning signs start showing up. And they, turn, they tell him to turn around and go back to safety, go back to where the light touches. Guilt in the aftermath of sin is a lot like that. Leading up to, during, and after, it's a lot like that. It, it works a lot like the disappearing light, the scary scenery, the spooky soundtrack. Because what it tells us is this isn't right. This isn't right. Turn around, go, ha- go home, because you're not safe here. Do you see how that's God's grace? It's God's grace that we have a conscience that pricks us. It's it's God's grace that he dwells in Christians, convicting them of their sin because he's telling us to go home. So listen, as much as you, and I'm asking you to do this, as much as you're, you're the one bringing your guilt to God, the guilt is also bringing you to God. More specifically, God is using your guilt to bring you to himself. As much as you bring your guilt to God, God uses your guilt to bring you to himself. Beacon, we gotta pay attention to the warning signs. And that's why this is so crazy to me. Because yeah, in one sense, like we're meeting God halfway, right? Sure, we bring the confession, God meets us with mercy. But in another sense, the confession itself is God's mercy. Do you see that? It's his gift. Because we wouldn't have gotten to that point without him bringing us there. Sometimes, like, kicking and screaming, he drags us there. Beacon, it's all mercy. It's all mercy. We owe him everything. Everything. And that brings us to our last sub-point here. If you're looking at your notes, Jesus is our mercy. Jesus is our mercy. Look back at the passage. And I want you to notice in these verses, how much it talks about cleansing. Okay, look at verse 2. David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Okay, wash. Also in verse 2, cleanse me from my sin. And then skip to verse 7. 
Wash me. Again, there's that word wash. Also in verse, verse 7, purge me with hyssop. So there's a lot of washing, a lot of purging, making clean. And it's that phrase that I want to focus on. Purge me, or literally unsin me, like de-sin me, take away the sin, with hyssop. I uh, want to talk, talk about that thing, hyssop. See, in the Old Testament, hyssop was this herb uh, that God commanded his people to use in their cleansing rituals. Okay, it made things clean. Uh, and, and it's referenced throughout the law. But there's this one particular usage of hyssop that I find really interesting. So turn with me to Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, we're in the middle of this really famous story called the Exodus. And um, if you haven't heard it before, right, long story short, the Israelites, they're enslaved by the Egyptians. They're put to hard work. And God sends this guy named Moses to free them, Right? The Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, refuses. So God starts lighting Egypt up with like crazy stuff, crazy plagues, okay? And then he and then he ends with the worst one of all. He kills every firstborn child in the land. Kills them all. But he spares the firstborn children of who? The Israelites, right? And and how does he do it? What does he tell them to do? He tells them to symbolically protect themselves by killing a lamb, Passover lamb, putting the blood on the lamb of the lamb on the doorframe that night. You guys remember this story? Okay. So, so look at, we're in Exodus, everybody in Exodus 12? Okay, look at verses 21 and 22. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Verse 22. Take a bunch of hyssop. Dip it in the blood that is in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the, with the blood that is in the basin. That's how you protect yourself. Okay, so the hyssop, get this, the hyssop in David's mind, when he writes that word, what is he thinking? He's thinking cleansing rituals, this is how I become clean, but he's also thinking salvation. This is how you save a life. This is how you don't die. And it should mean something else too. Right? Even if we're not putting lamb's blood on our door, we're actually doing something uh, much more incredible because you've heard, of, we talked about Jesus, right? You've heard him called um, the lamb of God, right? Have you heard that phrase for, for Jesus before? And, he, and he's called the lamb of God because throughout the New Testament, he's referred to as our Passover lamb. Like in the same way that the death and the blood of the Passover lamb protected people from death in Egypt, Jesus by his death and blood, protects us from the wrath that we're owed for our sin. See, this is the gospel that we were created to live holy lives. Remember that mark that we miss? God created us to be holy like him, to live in perfect unity with him, to worship him, obey him, enjoy him, but sin, right? We're born with our sinful nature, and we act on it. Oh, we act on it. We defy God over and over and over again. I don't, I don't think anybody needs to be convinced of that, that we do a lot of wrong, that we are wrongdoers by nature, and because of that, we are owed punishment. Like a just God doesn't just let people go for evil. He punishes them, and that's us. But this guy named Jesus, Jesus Perfectly God, perfectly man, comes at the right time, born as a baby, lives the perfect life up to standard, never missing the mark that we were supposed to live, you and me. And then instead of going back to heaven where he deserves to be the ruler of the universe forever, what does he do? He goes to a cross. And on that cross, Jesus is making us a trade, offering us an invitation. My life for your life. You give me your sin, Jesus is crushed on the cross by his own father for it. Suffers hell, wrath on that piece of wood. And in exchange, offers Christians, believers, perfect righteousness. So that we can be forgiven. We can stand before God and be accepted and have eternal life. With this Jesus who then three days later walks out of the grave victorious and says, have life with me. For eternity. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And, and so, David, on this journey, I actually think he doesn't get the full picture. At least he doesn't see it 
all come together, and we do, because we got to see Jesus. I mean, he's right there in the text. We get to learn Jesus, hear him, walk with him, and know that he came to save us. That's the gospel. So that brings us to the third and shortest part of the conversation. God, make us better. God, make us better. A few subpoints here. First, we ask God for joy. What do we do in confession? We ask God for joy. Look at verse 8 again. Back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 8. David says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. And then in verse 12, skip down to verse 12. What does he say? Restore to me the joy of your salvation. So what is he saying here? He's saying, when I bring my guilt to you, God, and you forgive me, you cleanse me, make me white as snow, wash me of my iniquity, what do I get? I get joy. I get joy. I'm happy again. When we're forgiven, Beacon, it makes us happy again. So, so I want you to take a moment and take an honest look at your own life. What makes you happy? What makes you happy? Would you say that you're a happy person? Right? It probably depends, right? Depends on if you get into this or that program, uh, if you're in a romantic relationship or not, if someone likes you, right? Depends on how your grades are going, uh, how your parents are treating you, how your friends think of you, how many friends you have, blah, 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 right? There's so many things that factor into our, our happiness, but you gotta look at this. For the Christian, happiness is fixed, and it's fixed on one thing, Salvation. So let me ask you, do you have that joy? And how would it change things for you? How would it change things for you if your joy were truly fixed on what God has done for you in the gospel and not on your changing circumstances? How would it change things if you spent more time in your day thinking about the incredible grace that God has shown you and not so much time thinking about all of these things that the world promises. How would that change things? Second subpoint, we ask God to make us right. We ask God to make us right. Go back to verses five and six. David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, original sin again, right? But behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Do you see the contrast? Right, look at verse 5. Behold, I'm sinful, and I don't just do sinful things, I'm a sinner. Right, that's original sin. But look at what verse 6 is saying. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Meaning what? God wants us to be right. God wants us to be good. And... And then you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Not only does God want us there, he helps us get there. He helps us get there. See, um, if you put it all together, what David is saying is this, I'm bad to the core, but you want me to be good to the core, and you teach me how to get there. So a function of confession repentance, if you're doing confessing and repenting right, you got to be asking God to help you get better. Because he doesn't just give you grace to forgive you, right? Like, oh, I can sin, but, but, but uh, God will forgive me, right? God, please take away this guilty feeling. That's not the only reason we confess. He also gives us grace to change. Not just grace to be forgiven, but grace to be transformed. So we're not just on this journey from guilt to no guilt. That's not the end of the journey guys. The, the journey is from guilt to good. So when you pray, don't, don't just pray that, that God would take away this bad, icky feeling, this weight, this voice at the, at the back of your head, right? You're, you're not just asking God to clear your record. You're, you're asking for more than that. Beacon, ask God to change you, to change you, because he wants to. Ask him to teach you wisdom in the secret heart, or as verse 10 goes, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me because he wants to and he can and he will. So ask. 
Third, we ask God to help us please him. Help us please him. Look at verses 16 and 17. David continues, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. All right, so what is David saying here? He's saying, if I don't humbly confess my sin before you, I can sacrifice all I want. You're not going to be happy with it, right? Do you guys see that? Uh, I, I can go to church. I can go to a campus fellowship. I can... Uh, do all the ministry I want. Some of you are in ministry positions here at Beacon on your campuses. I, I can read the Bible. I can pray. I can evangelize all I want. But if I haven't come before God broken and contrite over my sin, you won't delight in any of it. He won't delight in any of it. But then look at verses 18 and 19. Look at the contrast here. What does David write? Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then, listen, then you will delight. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So what is he saying here? He's saying, once I've done that, once I've come before you, broken and contrite over my sin, then you'll be pleased with my sacrifices. Okay? So it's not that God doesn't want the sacrifices. Do you see that? It's not that he doesn't want the, the, the church going and the, the campus fellowship and the, you know, all the stuff that you're doing for him. It's, it's that it's got to happen in the right order. It's, it's that it's got to happen in the right order. What I want you to see here and take away is, is that David arranges his life around what pleases God. When he hasn't dealt with his sin, he knows that the only thing that God wants from him is to deal with his sin. And as he's dealing with his sin, he knows that God still wants him to please him, to, to make the sacrifices. But either way, what's David's goal? To please God. And that's got to be at the core of your confession. If I were to ask you, when you last confessed, when you, fat, when you felt guilty and dealt with it, why did you do it? Why did you do it? Was it because you, you couldn't stand the heavy feeling of guilt anymore? Maybe. Is it because you were going to church the next day or you were like going to lead a ministry thing the next day and you didn't want to feel like a hypocrite? Maybe, right? It has to come down to this, though. Your confession has to come down to this to make God happy, just to make him happy. So taking this journey with David shows us that there are these three things that come during true confession. Steady joy that doesn't depend on circumstances. Change in the way that we live. And a life that aims to make our Father happy. And that brings us to our final point. Asking God to make his people whole. We ask God to make us whole. Let's finish with verses 18 and 19. Here they are again. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Notice, David asks God to do good to who? To who? Do good to Zion, right? Which if you didn't know is, is God's city. He asks God to build up the what? The walls of Jerusalem, the city of God's people. So, so he doesn't say, God, do good to me. Good, do good to me in, in, in your good pleasure. Build up my walls. He doesn't end with, help me to get better. Forgive me and help me to get better. He goes beyond that. He says, do it for all of us. Your people, do it for our good. In fact, remember the intro? Go back to the intro, Psalm 51. This is before verse, uh, 50, before verse 1, where, where David introduces it. What does it say? To the choir master, as in like, like this is supposed to be a song up there, like this incredibly raw personal confession, we're supposed to sing it at church. Like this would be like if I took your diary or your journal, right, or if you don't keep either of those, like your mental thoughts, and like put them up there on Sunday. Like how would you feel about that, right? But what do we learn here? What do we learn here? We learn that all of God's people have a stake in each person's repentance. 
all of God's people have a stake in your and my repentance. This whole church does. Because sickness in one part of the body affects the whole thing, and we're not really healthy until everyone is. We're not whole until everyone is. So, yeah, sin and forgiveness, that's very much between you and God. You've got to bring it before him, but it's also something that we do together. We confess our sin to God and to each other. We encourage ourselves with the gospel and also each other. So let me close with this. If you're thinking about Beacon, like whether or not you'll come or what it's going to look like for you this year, just remember this, that this is a place where, as the people of God, we need to do this together. Together that God might build up our walls and do good to his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this guide, David, who took us on this journey from guilt to good. And, and I know we can relate to him in so many ways. And I pray, Father, for each and every person in this room, myself included, that the sin that we feel guilt over tonight that we would bring it before you with your people bring it before others and ask them to help us that when we sin not if but when we sin uh, we would know that we can always come before you because you've paid the price in Christ you offer cleansing and cleansing to the fullest um, thank you God for the gospel and thank you for what you've done to bring us back to you and I pray that we would be people uh, who deal with our sin correctly, help others deal with their sin correctly, and do it all for your glory and for your pleasure. We love you and praise you. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.